Today's word is Exodus 7, 1 through 15. And it reads, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his hand, out of his land. But I will hearten Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Whew, Jesus. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from amongst them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that I may become a serpent, that it may become a serpent, excuse me. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Obedience, come on. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and down his and uh, and they and the magicians of Egypt, also the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he had not listened to them as the Lord has said. This is the reading of the word today. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, it's so great to be here. And uh, St. Clair, so grateful for you and all the folks at Grove Park Community Church. We're, we are so honored to be able to join with y'all. And at Iglesia Amistad, Abraham, it was mentioned earlier, we have several from their congregation. I know Melvin, their senior pastor, is not feeling well today. Um, but we're so grateful for him and just the, the incredible gospel partner that, that he and that church has been to us here at Christ Covenant. And I'm so grateful the Lord has provided this amazing spot to meet in. The Lord has always provided for us and he's always given us a great place to worship him. Uh, and, and we are so grateful to be out here in this beautiful place today, worshiping the Lord. We've been walking through Exodus and uh, we come here today to chapter seven. And what we're trying to do, if you're just kind of joining us for this, we're, we're trying to cover the whole book, but in 11 weeks. And so we're having to take kind of big swaths of, of scripture and, and we're just looking at small texts, but, but, but kind of bridge us into uh, bigger kind of ideas in the book. In order to understand what's going on here in chapter seven, you have to go back and read the end of chapter six and, and kind of understand what has happened to this point in the story. Uh, verse 28 through 30 of six says this, if you just want to flip back a page, it says, on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, all that I say to you. Okay, so 
It, we see that same thing picked up in chapter 7. But Moses says, Lord, behold, I'm of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And, and we see in this, this this theme that we've been looking at, we certainly looked at last week. The, the Hebrew people, of course, had been in the land of Egypt. They'd been enslaved. They'd been mistreated. But they cried out to God. And God listened and he heard their cries and he answered by sending them this deliverer, this one to bring them out of slavery, to bring them out of the hands of the Egyptians. But the only problem was the deliverer kept struggling to believe God. <laughs> the deliverer didn't really believe that God could use him in this way. And the, only, the other problem was the people didn't believe that God would actually be so kind to them. It would actually be so merciful to them. And then of course, the third problem is that Pharaoh certainly didn't believe that God was this deliverer, was that he had power over him. And so chapter seven begins, and it begins this section of text that's incredibly important, but we're only gonna spend really one week on it. And, and it's this plague sequence. And, and we're really gonna look at the whole sequence of plagues today as we, we jump from chapter seven forward. Two things are happening in this sequence, and both are incredibly important. The first, and this is very important for us to hear, God in these plagues is undoing the faith of the Egyptians. So the first thing that's happening is God's undoing the faith of the Egyptians and he's making himself known in a profound way and inviting faith in himself. God is undoing the faith of the Egyptians, whatever faith that they have, he's undoing it in these plagues. And he's making himself known and he's inviting faith in himself. So there's actually, there's 10 plagues, but there's 11 signs. And we read about the first sign here. Aaron throws his staff down and it becomes this serpent. Now it's obviously, it's not a plague in the fact that, you know, the, there wasn't a lot of collateral damage to this, but it, it is a sign. God was showing himself and it's a very profound sign of course, the Egyptian magicians were able to do the same and Pharaoh's heart stays hard. But what's interesting in this text is that Aaron's serpent, Aaron's staff serpent, swallows up the serpents of the Egyptians, of the magicians of the Egyptians. And this serpent imagery, it's very important. It, it appears throughout the, the whole of the Bible. Remember the very beginning of the Bible begins with what? The serpent coming to deceive the man and the woman, Satan taking the form of this serpent and leading the man and the woman into deception. It's very interesting that the Egyptians picked up on this identity. I think we, we kind of need to ask ourselves what's going on here and why. If you think about King Tut, if you remember King Tut from school or if you've seen a documentary on King Tut, you've seen the imagery of King Tut. What is the imagery? It's, it's the imagery of a snake. It's the imagery of, I mean, even his headdress is one of a cobra. That if you, if you, if you, you can Google this later. This is where the slides are somewhat helpful. But even the, uh, even the little imagery at the top of King Cobra's, or King Cobra's, <laughs> King Tut's uh, headdress is a cobra. It, it, it is this identity with this serpent-like figure. And when a pharaoh would come into office, this is very interesting. The, the oath of office that they would say. So, of course, you know, inauguration day, the president puts his hand on the Bible and says, I will protect the Constitution of the United States. This, this moment for the Pharaoh, here's what he said. This is what he would literally say, his oath of office. He would say, oh, great one, oh, magician, oh, fiery snake, 
Let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of the spirits. Now, I, I don't know what you make of that, but it, it feels kind of like he's, he's vowing to the serpent, this great serpent. It, it definitely feels kind of a demonic or Satan-filled kind of vow here. It's very interesting how Satan and the Egyptians as a whole, and again, this is, I'm not getting this from the Bible, I'm getting this from uh, historical sources of Egypt, but how there was a lot of identity among the Egyptians with the serpent. But here in this story, the imagery here, and it's, you don't wanna miss it, Aaron's serpent or God's serpent eats the other snakes. He, he's, he overcomes the power of the Egyptian serpents. He's, in, in a sense, God is undoing their faith in these false snakes. And he's establishing faith in himself, the one true and living God. And if you look at the plagues, this, this kind of idea of God undoing the faith of the Egyptians, God undoing all of their false faiths, continues throughout the, the, whole, the whole sequence of plagues. The first plague, God turns the Nile River, God through Moses turns the Nile River, the life source of Egypt. He turns it into blood. Well, of course, there was a God that the Egyptians worshiped. His name was Hapi. He was the God of the Nile. They depended on this God to protect the Nile because the Nile was everything to them. The Nile was their source of life. The Nile was really their source of, of wealth. And so they would worship this God, Hapi, in order to protect the Nile. But on that day, there was, where was Hapi? He had totally failed them. God was showing that their dependence on Hopi was false. You know, even in that sequence, and, and again, I don't have time to get into this deep today, but even in that sequence, the magicians also turn water into blood. And so Pharaoh's heart remains hard, if you remember that, the Egyptian magicians. The only problem with that is they, they didn't need more blood, right? They didn't need more water turned into blood. They needed blood turned into water. But of course, the gods of the Egyptians, the powers of the Egyptians were totally unable to undo what God had done. The second plague of the Egyptians, there was a, it was the plague of frogs. Interestingly, the goddess Hecate, she was the goddess of fertility among the Egyptians. She had a, a frog head, that was her image. And it, 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 it's, it wasn't lost on me that, that the Egyptians who tried to destroy the fertility of the Hebrew people by throwing their babies into the Nile were swarmed over by this animal that was in the image of one of the gods that they depended on for fertility. The, the, the third, the third uh, plague was gnats, swarms of gnats, that if you remember the story, Moses struck the earth and gnats flew up from the earth. Well, of course, the Egyptians had a god for that. It was Geb, he was the god of the earth, but he provided no protection for them from the gnats. Kephri was an Egyptian god who had a head of a fly who, again, could not overcome the swarms of flies that came on them in the fourth plague. When their livestock died during the fifth plague, when all the cows, the livestock of the Egyptians died in the fifth plague, I'm sure people cried out to Hather, who was the goddess of protection, who had the head of a cow. But she did not respond. When, they were, when their bodies were filled with sores and boils, I'm sure they cried out to Isis, the god of medicine, the goddess of medicine, but there was no response from her. 
when hail rained down from the sky on them, destroying everything, destroying their buildings, their crops. I'm sure they called out to Newt, the goddess of the sky, to protect them from this hail coming from the sky, but Newt did not respond. When locusts filled the sky, I'm sure they reached out to Seth, the god of storms and disorder. When the sun was blocked out, and they couldn't see for days. I'm sure they cried out to Ra, the God of the sun, to give them light. But of course, in all of these pleas, <laughs> in all of these cries, all of these gods that they had put so much faith in, so much stock in them to protect them, to keep them wealthy and strong and secure, there was never any, any answer during this plague sequence. One of the things that we see God doing here is undoing the faith that the Egyptians had. What's my point in this? Here's, here's my point. You, you all have faith in something. Everyone is trusting in something. Everyone's believing in something. Even these Egyptians. And, and the good thing actually about pain and struggle and suffering and even disaster is that it's incredibly clarifying. It, it, it can show when you go through pain, when you experience a disaster, it can actually show how weak these other things that we depend on are. It, it shows us how oftentimes we rest in things that are not trustworthy. Douglas Stewart says this, he says, the first nine plagues were special, divinely produced manifestations of God's sovereignty over Egypt, its king, its people, its environment, and its gods. These first plagues accomplished by imitations on a huge and destructive scale of phenomena throughout the, uh, thought by the Egyptians to be the province of their gods. So again, all the Egyptians thought, well, these things are safe. You can't get to the Nile. You, you can't, uh, the, the gnats won't swarm us because we have gods for all these things. The Egyptians were believing in the wrong gods though. And God turned things believed to be the specialty of the gods of Egypt against the Egyptians. He showed himself in control of all events and all powers that they would have attributed to the objects of their faith. You see what God's doing here? This is so important. He's undoing the faith of the Egyptians. He's turning upside down these false faith, the false faith that they had. You know, even Pharaoh himself, he was seen as so powerful, so strong. Even Pharaoh himself, who was seen as divine, could not keep death away from his house. When the 10th plague came, when death came to every house in Egypt, when the firstborn child of every household died, even Pharaoh's own household was not spared from the power of God in this judgment, in this destruction. Douglas Stewart goes on, the 10th plague stood apart from the first nine as a decisive imposition of the death penalty. This is so interesting. On the nation that tried to enslave and mortally oppress God's special people, his firstborn son. You see what's happening here? The people of Israel, these are God's covenant people. They are his children. They are his firstborn child. And now the 10th plague shows judgment. It's a death penalty on the Egyptians for oppressing God's son. God is destroying the faith of the Egyptians. But all the while, and this is what's so important about this whole sequence of plagues, 
All the while, he is shielding and showing enormous favor to his covenant people, the Hebrew people. I mean, this is amazing to think about. In the land of Goshen, as all of these horrible things are happening, the locusts, the gnats, the flies, the darkness. I mean, I don't even know how this worked. In Goshen, there was light. In Goshen, there was no hail. The people of Israel, the Hebrew people in their land, they were totally shielded from these things. What a display of God's judgment on his enemies alongside, or his severe wrath, alongside of his severe mercy toward his covenant people, all in the same land. Even when death, of course, visited Egypt and every household mourned, there was no mourning in Goshen. There was no mourning among the Hebrew people because the blood of the lamb had shielded them from this death. God was destroying the faith of the Egyptian and he was showing himself that he was the one true God. And you know, his dominance over Egypt in these plagues and then of course in the crossing of the Red Sea truly did this. It, it, it truly spread his glory and fame. I mean, in Joshua chapter two, Rahab the prostitute, this woman, she's a prostitute in Jericho, very, very far from Egypt, near the Jordan River, Rahab the prostitute knew of the God of the Hebrews. She had heard of the, this is a prostitute. She's not, she's not the local anchor woman. She's not the person that's up on current affairs, but she had heard of these things. Everybody knew about this God of the Hebrews who had undone the Egyptians yet kept his people safe. The key verse is verse five. If you're taking notes or underlining, mark this verse, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. The Egyptians shall know who the true God is. God is undoing the faith of the Egyptians and he is showing himself as the only one who is worthy of faith. Now you might look at this and think, okay, well, is God's only plan for Egypt here, judgment and destruction. It's God's only plan for Egypt just to, to, to use them as an object of his wrath so he can show his strength. And actually, as we read in the Bible, that there's more to the story than just this. Isaiah 19, it's a prophecy of Isaiah. It's a fascinating passage. And Isaiah the prophet is speaking of these nations. He's speaking of Egypt. And he begins talking about the destruction of Egypt. He, he begins Isaiah 19 saying, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud. He comes to Egypt and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. Exactly what we're talking about here. And the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. God will destroy the faith of the Egyptians. That's how the prophecy begins. But how does the prophecy end? It's a fascinating prophecy. The end of the prophecy, by the end of the prophecy, God is talking about the Egyptians, the oppressors of his covenant people. He's talking about the Egyptians as my people. Hear how Isaiah 19 ends. It says, in that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, blessing in the midst of the earth for the whole earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Don't you see what's happening here? This is so fascinating. God is destroying Egypt. <laughs> He's undoing their false 
faith, their, their idolatry, their faith in things that are not the Lord, but he is showing that they can actually trust him. Through judgment, God is making himself known and calling people to faith in him, calling people to the true God of salvation, call, showing people that they can truly count on him, believe in him, trust him, love him. As we just sang, he is a firm foundation. So here's the question for you today. Where is your faith? Where is your faith really? What is the foundation of your faith, of your life? What are you trusting in really? What are you counting on today? You know, here we are. I, I, I love this moment. I, I love that we, we didn't plan this passage for today, but this just happened. And I just think it's so profound. Here we are, we're in the middle of this amazing city, this amazing city that God loves and he's blessed in so many ways. But there's so much in our city that can become a false faith, a false idol. There's so much all around us that, that we can start counting on, trusting in, that can grab our affection and, and steal away our faith from the Lord. And so I would just ask that question. If, if, <laughs> if God were to come to Atlanta and undo the gods that we're trusting in, uh, undo the false face that we have. If God were to show up and there were to be 10 great plagues <laughs> that would come on our city, that would come to Atlanta, what, what God would he undo that, that maybe you're trusting in, that you're clinging to? What, what, what is it that's coming between you and the Lord? You know, for some of you, it's your wealth. You're trusting in wealth to keep you secure, to protect your family. And I get it, wealth has done a lot for you. But I want you to hear this. I, I would never wish this upon you, okay? I would never wish this upon you because I love you and I care about you. But, but I actually believe for, 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 some, for a lot of people in our city and, and, and for maybe some of you here today, the greatest thing that God could ever do for you is like he destroyed the crops of Egypt and like all the livestock died in Egypt. The greatest thing that actually God could do for you is to take your wealth away because it would expose this false God. It would show this thing that you're trusting in that is weak and faulty. In that moment, you'd have no one to cry out to, but the Lord, he'd be all you have. But then when you, when you do, you would see he actually is a firm foundation. He actually is good. He actually is all I need. You know, for some of you, it's sexual sin. It's sexual sin. The idolatry of some sort of sexual sin in your life. It's keeping you from worship. It's keeping you from really loving the Lord. And again, the greatest thing that could happen <laughs> is that God would somehow expose that sin in your life, that all of that would be exposed because then you, you would actually see how unwholesome and unholy it actually is, how unsatisfying it actually is. And you'd have to depend on the Lord. You'd have to look to the Lord. It would be a horrible thing, but it would be a great thing. It would, that, that judgment that would happen in your life would create the clarity that might actually lead you to a faith that can save you. For some of you, it's some sort of self-promotion, right? It's the fear of man. We all have that, if we're honest. We want people to praise us, to like us. We don't wanna be the Jesus freak. We don't want to be the person that misses out on this opportunity because of some commitment to the Lord. The greatest thing that could happen 
to you if that's your struggle is that you would be so embarrassed. <laughs> is that you would see how man sticks around. You would see how the fear of man is so weak and faulty and how people actually run from you in the day of trouble. And in that moment, you would, you would actually turn to the, law, the Lord who will never leave you or forsake you. And you'd find that in him there is goodness and love and true standing. You know, for some of you, it's self-righteousness. It's some list of goodness. It's, it's you know you're good because you have this and you've done this and you've done this and you're always kind of pointing to that. I know people like this. I could, I'm sure I could be like this. Or it's like we kind of use a little bit of a thing to say, well, I've done this and I've done this. And of course I wouldn't do that. It's some sort of self-righteousness. That's your hope. That's the God that you're trusting in. And actually the greatest thing that God could do for you today even, it would hurt, it would hurt so bad, <laughs> is for God to totally expose how sinful you really are. It's for your sin to be known. And you, you would be so embarrassed. You'd be so ruined that that thing that you're hiding, that thing that nobody could see, everybody would see it and you'd be so embarrassed that the only person that you could count on in that moment is the Lord. The only mercy that's deep enough to catch you in that moment of great shame and embarrassment is the mercy of the Lord that, that plunges the depths. Don't you see, actually one of the greatest things that God can actually do for you is to, is to expose the false things that we're putting our faith in. It's, it's the very thing that actually gives us clarity to see how good and kind and loving God is. That's what we see in this passage. The Egyptians didn't think of the Hebrew people. They didn't notice the Hebrew people. They were just slaves. They were nobodies. But I guarantee you, they noticed the Hebrew people and they thought about their God on the day when it was dark everywhere in Egypt, but it was light in Goshen. <laughs> The Egyptians never thought about the Hebrew people. They certainly didn't think about their little Hebrew God. But I guarantee you, they started asking questions about who is this Hebrew God when there was hail everywhere and everyone's homes and everyone's livestock and everyone's crops were totally destroyed by the hail, but no hail fell in Goshen. In Goshen, they were shielded. In Goshen, they were protected. In Goshen, they were experiencing God's kindness and mercy and love toward his covenant people. You know, think about that. <laughs> if I was in Egypt at this time and I kind of started noticing this, I mean, are you with me here? Like, wouldn't you be saying, you know, we need to move to Goshen. We need to get into Goshen What's the deal with Goshen? Let's, let's buy a house over there. Let's get in among these people. This story displays God undoing the false faith of the Egyptian people and showing them how good it is to be his covenant child. God showed great kindness to these Hebrew people in this story. But I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this, hear this loud and clear. He's shown even greater kindness to you and to me. He, he's actually given us a greater invitation. God has, he hasn't just spared us from hail or gnats, as horrible as they can be. They're temporary. They're not ultimately determinative. They don't actually destroy us, but God has actually spared us from the thing that will destroy you for all of eternity. He's shielded you from your sin. He's shielded you from his 
judgment. He's, he's become a protection through his son, Jesus Christ, for us. He's shown you incredible kindness, not just by sparing you, but by loving you and inviting you to be his covenant people where you can experience his love. Where in the coming ages, the Bible says, he will pour out the riches of his love and mercy and kindness upon you for ages and ages to come. That's the invitation. That's the covenant invitation that is ours in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ has taken on the judgment and the death that we certainly deserved. And in his place, he's offered us perfect righteousness. And what that means is that through faith in him, in him, we have a perfect standing before God. And so through Christ, God's not an enemy. We're called God's children. We're, we're brought in. We're brought in with the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And this offer of salvation, this door is open to all who have faith in Jesus. And so I ask you this, has God undone your other faiths? <laughs> Has God undone your false faiths? And are you trusting in him? Have you seen this invitation to become God's covenant people? Have you, have you felt the voice of Jesus calling you into relationship with God? God undoes the faith of the Egyptian and he, he shows himself as the one true God, the one worthy of our faith, the one that really won't let us down. There's one other thing I wanna look at at this passage. And that's the interplay with the heart of Pharaoh. If you study the book of Exodus, you've noticed this. There's, this. there's a big dynamic going on with Pharaoh's heart. We see it in chapter seven here, verse three. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, God says, and though I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. We see it at the end of the passage that St. Clair read for us. Pharaoh's heart remained hard, his heart was hardened. So if, you, if you've studied this, I'll give you the quick statistics here. Three times the Lord says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, seven times, it's a little confusing. The Bible says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, right? So we, we, we don't exactly know. We don't know if that's God hardening Pharaoh's heart or if Pharaoh's own, his, his heart was just hardened. Did he just, it was his own hardening of the heart. Now, three times, we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Pharaoh's, it, it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart against the things of the Lord. But six times, we're told definitively that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. What are we to make of this? Well, in Exodus 9, God explicitly says to Pharaoh, Exodus 9, 16, God says, for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed throughout the earth. In, in a sense, God is saying to Pharaoh, I've raised you up for this purpose so I can destroy you so that through you and through this great destruction, my name will be known throughout the whole earth. And of course, Paul in his famous treatise on the purposes of God in Romans 9 quotes this very verse from Exodus 9. What are we to make of this? Again, this is a big discussion, but I, I couldn't leave this sermon without at least jumping into this with you guys. Three things. First, God has his purposes, right? When you run into things like this and it's a little confusing and you don't understand the way of God, the, the thing I think I would say to you is this, God has his purposes. As we said last week, he's the main character. It's all about him. Don't miss the main point, right? It's all about him. God's chief purpose 
is to glorify himself, is to make his glory known. That's actually his purpose in all of the creation. The reason that tree is there, the reason these clouds are here, the reason you were created was that through your life and through these trees and through this grass and through this sky, God's name would be known. God's glory would be displayed. So don't miss the main point. Now, we, we certainly know from scripture that God uses the real decisions that we are making in accordance with his plan, but God has his purposes and his purpose in all the creation, including his purpose in your existence. And I want you to hear that is to bring glory to himself. Number two, and I want you to say this, I want to say this explicitly, God will use your life to bring himself glory. Okay, I want you to hear that. God will definitively use your life to bring himself glory. It will either be in you receiving the abundant mercy and kindness and grace that God has extended to you and to me through Jesus and becoming his covenant child and praising him and worshiping him and being with him in his new heavens and new earth where all has been made right. It will either be that or it will be through you hardening your heart against his call and God destroying you for your sin. God, God will use your life God will use your life. God created you for his glory and he will receive glory through your life. It will either be through God's magnificent mercy that he's offering to us, that he's displaying to us, that he's even today in this public park. And if you're just listening to me walking around, I hope you hear this. This abundant mercy that God has shown us in Christ that we can be the covenant people of God, that we can receive his kindness and mercy and love. That's how, that's how I hope and I pray and I plead with you today that you, would, that you would glorify God. But God will receive glory through your life and if you harden your heart against him, if you don't respond, if you, if you keep faith in these false gods, if you keep faith in these things that will never satisfy instead of the Lord and your heart grows hard against him, and your love for these things are greater than him, he will glorify himself through you too. It will only be through your destruction. And that's, of course, what we see in Pharaoh here. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We see God using Pharaoh as his tool, but, but that doesn't happen without Pharaoh hardening his heart. We certainly see Pharaoh's culpability in this. It's not like Pharaoh is an innocent actor here. And this leads me to the third point. Don't harden your heart. <laughs> When you hear the voice of the Lord, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. If God is convicting you today, you know, if earlier when I was talking about wealth or sexual sin or something or whatever I was talking about, self-promotion, self-righteousness, don't harden your heart. You're, you're here today. You know, a lot of people skip church on Labor Day. They go to the lake. I don't know why you're here, but you are here. And I hope you're here for this, to hear this message. Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart against the Lord. If the Lord is calling you today, his invitation to you is that you would come to Goshen. <laughs> the door to Goshen is wide open and you can receive God's kindness and receive God's mercy and receive God's love. The door to Goshen is open. Don't harden your heart. Don't, don't be so proud of your Egyptian identity. You understand the analogy? 
Don't be proud of whatever you're identifying with, that you miss the door to Goshen that has been opened to you by Jesus himself. When you hear the voice of the Lord, when God convicts you, believe in the grace and mercy of Jesus all the more. Don't harden your heart against him. And may his glory be known in your life, not through your destruction, but through your life, through your eternal life with him, with your eternal life through him as a worshiper of the living God. And so in response to that, I do invite you to stand and let's worship. Let's worship. Let's respond to that now by worshiping the Lord. As we're readying our hearts for worship, let's pray together. Father, this day, I pray if there's anyone here who's experiencing the conviction of the Spirit of God, St. Clair reminded us earlier, Spirit of God inside of us, the Spirit of God around us, Lord, that they would, they would take that conviction seriously. They would repent of sin, that they would turn to Christ, that they would, that they would enter into the door of Goshen. And Father, I pray that we would be the people that, <laughs> that are not the kind of people that you're, you're gonna use all of our lives for your glory, Lord. We know that. I pray, Father, that in your mercy, you would open our small, little feeble and faithless hearts enough to see how much greater the offer of Jesus is than the offer of anything else in this world. And Father, I'm not praying that you would necessarily bring a plague on everyone here. Help us to believe the easy way. But Lord, if it's a plague, if it's destruction, if it's sickness, if it's hail, if it's gnats, whatever it is, my plea, the greater thing would be that our idols are exposed. These false gods are exposed and that we see once and for all that you are the only trustworthy and true and living God. So Lord, I even, I even pray that for us, Lord, that our hearts would be exposed to anything that is false and that you would lead us to what is true and right. Father, the worst thing that could ever happen to us supposed to live our whole lives deceived, believing in something that will let us down on the day of the storm. So Father, expose those things today. Lead us to faith in you, the one and true and living and good God. Help us to see, Father, that today the door of Goshen has been opened by a cross. Jesus Christ, our Savior, has paid the ransom, paid the price for all of our sin, has invited us in to an eternal home, to a good home where all is made right and new and well. Give us faith to believe these things, I pray in Jesus' name.